Lesson 13 for June 18 to 24. Crucified and Risen. Sabbath afternoon, June 18. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've gone through the book of Matthew, we've learnt more, but we've also experienced more as your Holy Spirit has guided us. And this week, as we look at the last stages of Jesus' life, the death and the resurrection, we just pray that we may be inspired, we may be changed, and that we may know that you are our God. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let's read that again, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. An advertisement in a British magazine asked if someone would donate his or her body to science. It said that scientists had been studying Egyptian mummification and were looking for a volunteer with a terminal illness who was prepared to donate their body after death. These scientists believed, the ad claimed, that they had cracked the secret of how the Egyptians did it and that the body would be preserved potentially for hundreds or even thousands of years. As Christians, we don't need to worry about having our corpses preserved. God has promised us something so much better than that. The death of Jesus, where he paid in himself the penalty for our sins, and then his resurrection, when he was, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15.20, the firstfruits of those who had fallen asleep, have paved the way for our corpses not to be preserved like some ancient pharaoh. Besides, if you've ever seen some of those corpses, they aren't too pretty anyway. But to be transformed into incorruptible bodies that will live forever. This week, the final chapters in Matthew, we study the inexhaustible truths regarding our Lord's death and resurrection and the hope that these two events offer us. Sunday, June 19, Jesus or Barabbas? Question. Read Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through to 26. What are some of the deeper implications of the choice given to the people and the choice that they eventually made? Let's begin with Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And... At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. 
While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It was Barabbas, the murderer, who was supposed to be crucified on the middle cross. The criminals on either side were possibly his associates. Barabbas was not a first name, but a last one. Bar means son of, just as Simon Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah, or Bartholomew means son of Ptolemo. Barabbas meant son of Abbas, meaning son of the father. Many early manuscripts record Barabbas's first name as Yeshua or Jesus. Yeshua was a common name of the time, meaning Yahweh saves. So, Barabbas's name was along the lines of Yahweh saves, son of the father. Talk about a farce. From the Desire of Ages, page 733, I read, This man had claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed authority to establish a different order of things, to set the world right. Under satanic delusion, he claimed that whatever he could obtain by theft and robbery was his own. He had done wonderful things through satanic agencies. He had gained a following among the people and had excited sedition against the Roman government. Under cover of religious enthusiasm, he was a hardened and desperate villain, bent on rebellion and cruelty. By giving the people a choice between this man and the innocent saviour, Pilate thought to arouse them to a sense of justice. He hoped to gain their sympathy for Jesus in opposition to the priests and rulers. End of quote. Pilate was wrong. Unless under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, people will inevitably make the wrong spiritual choice, as did the mob here. In the end, we all have to choose between Christ or Barabbas, Christ or the fallen, corrupted world, between life and death. And as it says in John 3.19, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And so to finish today, why do people tend to prefer darkness over light? How can you see, even in yourself, this inherent tendency? What should that tell you about the reality of our fallen nature, and even more important, about our need to surrender ourselves totally to the Lord?
Monday, June 20, our crucified substitute. Matthew 27 verses 45 and 46 reads, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question. What is the meaning of this cry? How do we understand its implications in term of the plan of salvation? Matthew records what has been called by theologians the cry of dereliction. Dereliction brings in the idea of abandonment, of something to be left alone and in need. In this case, we can see Jesus' sense of abandonment by the Father. The darkness that surrounded the land at that time symbolized divine judgment. As we read in Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 16, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and... As a sheep that no man takes up, every man will turn to his own people and every one will flee to his own land. Every one who is found will be thrust through and every one who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. And in Amos chapter 5 verses 18 to 20 Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord for what good is the day of the Lord to you it will be darkness and not light it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or as though he went into the house leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light is it not very dark with no brightness in it? And Jeremiah 13 verse 16. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains and while you are looking for light he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Jesus was experiencing in himself the horrific consequences of sin, of the complete separation from the Father. In our behalf, he was bearing in himself the divine judgment against sin that should have been ours. So Christ, as it says in Hebrews 9.28, was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And we're also going to look at Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty one. And Second Corinthians five twenty one reads For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
on the cross, Jesus appropriates the language of Psalm 21 because in a unique way he was experiencing what humans experience, the separation from God due to sin. Psalm 22 verse 1 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? But your iniquities have separated you from your God, it says in Isaiah 59 two, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This wasn't pretend. Jesus truly bore the wrath of God against sin. The penalty for our transgressions fell upon him and thus filled his soul with consternation and dread as he bore the weight of guilt, our guilt, upon himself. How bad sin must be in the sight of God that it took one member of the Godhead to suffer the guilt and punishment of sin in order for us to be forgiven it. And yet, even amid this horror, Jesus would cry out, My God! My God! Despite all that was happening to him, his faith remained intact. He would stay faithful to the end, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the sense of being forsaken by the Father. And so to finish the day, what is it like to feel separation from God due to sin? Why is claiming the righteousness of Christ our only way back, a claim accompanied by repentance, confession, and a resolve to forsake that sin? Tuesday, June 21, Torn Veil and Rent Rocks Each Gospel writer told the story of Jesus from various perspectives, but all focused on his death. Matthew alone, though, records the opening of the graves after the temple veil was torn. Question. Read Matthew chapter 27, verses 49 to 54. What is the meaning of these events? What hope do they point to for us? Matthew 27, beginning at verse 49. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God." Jesus died right after the mob, in ignorance of Jesus' real words, mocked him about having Elijah come to save him. Their mockery was another powerful but sad example of how Jesus has been misunderstood by many of his own people. Matthew then records that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The symbolism is unmistakable. A new era in salvation history had begun. The sacrificial services, for so long pointing to Jesus, were no longer necessary. The old earthly type was now replaced by something so much better. Question. Read Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 to 6. 
What do these texts say that help us to understand what happened to the earthly sanctuary system and what has replaced it? Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Matthew records not only the tearing of the veil, but the rocks splitting, the graves opening, and some of the dead being raised, events that could happen only because of what Jesus had accomplished by dying as our substitute for sin. So, here in Matthew, we can see things happening that the old system itself could never have caused. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Of course, only Jesus could take away sins. And for us, the great result, the great promise of Jesus taking away our sins, is the resurrection from death. Without that promise, we have nothing as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In these resurrections, we don't know how many, we can see the hope and promise of our resurrection at the end of the age. Wednesday, June 22, The Risen Christ the Christian faith centres not only on the cross, but on the empty tomb. The truth is, the majority of people in the world, including non-Christians, believe that a man named Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. Not long after Jesus lived, we find historical references such as this one from Tacitus, a Roman historian. Nero inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. That's from Tacitus, who lived from A.D. 57 to 117 A.D. There's little debate now, then or now, about whether a historical figure named Jesus was condemned and crucified. The hard part is the resurrection. 
The idea that Jesus of Nazareth, who was dead on a Friday afternoon, became alive again on a Sunday morning. That is what many people struggle with. After all, a Jew crucified by the Romans in Judea was a fairly common occurrence. But a Jew raised from the dead after being crucified? That's another matter entirely. Yet, without this belief in a risen Jesus, we simply do not have a Christian faith. Paul wrote, as we read yesterday in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus' death itself had to be followed by his resurrection, because in his resurrection we have the surety of our own. When we come to the history of the resurrection of Jesus, we have two options. The first option is to view this story as sentimental propaganda, written by a few lonely followers of Jesus to keep his memory alive, the way we try to keep the memory alive when a well-known figure dies today. The second option, when we come to the story of the resurrection, is to take it literally, a first-hand account of an extraordinary event an event later interpreted to have implications for every human being who ever lived. So to finish today, we're going to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through to 15. And we're going to ask the question, why does Jesus tell the women in verse 9 to rejoice? Of course, they can be glad that he was resurrected, that their master came back. But what is the real reason to rejoice at the resurrection of Jesus? Matthew 28 beginning at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. And... As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted them, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day.
Thursday, June 23, The Great Commission For many people, one of the most hard-to-understand things Jesus did was to return to heaven and entrust the gospel ministry to humans. How often we disappoint him and ourselves, and as the gospels show, his early followers were no exception. Yet, it's by entrusting us with ministry that Christ shows his love for us and our need of him. Question. Read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 18. Compare Jesus' words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, in verse 18, with Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. How do these texts relate to each other? Well, first of all, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 18. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And then another question. Read Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the final verses of this gospel. What does Jesus say, and what is the relevance of his words to us? Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always." even to the end of the age. Amen. Ellen G. White suggests that nearly 500 believers assembled on the mountain in Galilee after the resurrection. Uh, we have a description in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. His gospel commission was not just for the disciples, but for all believers. As she writes in Desire of Ages, page 822, It is a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls depends alone on the ordained minister. All to whom the heavenly inspiration has come are put in trust with the gospel. All who receive the life of Christ are ordained to work for the salvation of their fellow men. For this work the church was established, and all who take upon themselves its sacred vows are thereby pledged to be co-workers with Christ. End of quote. And so to finish today, have you often thought of yourself as a co-worker with Christ? In what specific ways can you be more active in taking the gospel to your world? Friday, June 24. As did all the other Gospel writers, Matthew wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. 
Also, as did his fellow writers, he wrote next to nothing about what the meaning of the resurrection itself was. Though they depicted the story of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John give us no real theological explanation of it, even though it's so central to the Christian faith. It's in Paul's writings that we get the most detailed explanation about the meaning of the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 22 reads, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul also wrote that we have been, as it says in Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Peter, too, has something to say on this crucial topic in 1 Peter 3.21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though we don't know why the Gospel writers didn't go into any detailed explanation, some scholars have seen this as more evidence of the truthfulness of their accounts. After all, writing many years after the events, why didn't they use this opportunity to give a detailed explanation of what they wanted people to believe about the resurrection? If it were a fraud or a con, why not take the opportunity to make it mean whatever they wanted it to mean? Instead, they simply tell the story, making no attempt to embellish it with any theological explanations as to what it all was supposed to mean. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. 1. At the moment of Jesus' death, the temple curtain from the old covenant was torn from top to bottom and a new covenant was ushered in, presided over by a new high priest, Jesus Christ, as it says in Hebrews 10.19-21. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. How does it make you feel to realize that Christ himself now serves as our high priest? And question two. Matthew's gospel covered so many subjects, so many topics. What things in particular struck you regarding how Jesus was presented here? How can studying this gospel help you better to understand what it means to be a Christian and to follow the teachings of Jesus? Inside Story. And now it's time for part three, the final part of Try Jesus, the story we've been following now for three weeks. When Gail saw how interested Neil and I were in what the children were learning, she gave us a video series to watch. The videos presented Bible truths such as the Sabbath in such a way that we did not feel threatened. As we watched the videos, we realized that for the first time, Christianity was making sense to us. Neil had never wanted to go to church before, but suddenly he was spending all his free time learning more about God. 
On the other hand, I had been trying for years to figure out what really happens to people when they die. Little by little, we realised that Christianity held far more for us than we had ever thought. It was definitely not a dull religion filled with meaningless traditions. We found it to be a vibrant, living faith, a faith we could really hold on to. Our new friends invited us to a series of Bible studies on the book of Revelation. We invited another family with whom we had become friends, and they enjoyed the series just as much as we did. Then Gail invited us to an evangelistic series at her church. Our friends went with us to every meeting. Even our children found plenty to hold their attention. Every night after the meetings we discussed what we had seen and heard. Some of our discussions lasted far into the night. When the speaker asked for those to stand who wanted to dedicate their lives to God, our whole family and our friends stood up together. As I look back on what happened, I realise that God did indeed have a plan for our lives when we moved from South Africa to a new home in Australia. In just one year, we had moved from one continent to another, received an invitation to try Jesus, and made the decision to follow Him and be baptised. What a life-changing year that was! One day at church, we were introduced to two young boys, who were cousins, who, the pastor told us, had been responsible for putting the Try Jesus cards into our letterbox. We are so grateful to those two young people, as well as to Gail, for the part they all played in leading us to the Lord. We are forever changed, and I continue to be overwhelmed when I think of how much God loves us, so much that He will bring together a series of miracles to lead us to Him. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.